Good afternoon, everyone. Steve Parisi here with IBC Global. Hope your day is off to a great start as usual. Today, we have a special guest, one of my favorite guests, Elizabeth Morgan. How are you today, Elizabeth? I'm great, Steve. How are you? Good over here. It is a nice, cool day. Had a nice run this morning, and I'm, I'm feeling energetic, so I'm, I'm good. <laughs> good. Fantastic. Although I don't know that I've ever seen you not energetic. Oh, it, it definitely happens, but I appreciate that. Thanks. <laughs> so what I wanted to talk about today um, is something that we touched on in our first podcast. It's actually um, when we first connected, something you said that just stuck with me. I, I still recall it to this day, this day, which is on the topic of working with financial services professionals, insurance agents, and from a client's perspective, what to look out for and to be very specific around high cash value life insurance and the topic of agent compensation or commission because it's a it's a gray area a lot of times it's difficult to get transparency around it and you can definitely chime in on this point is so many people often get into a policy this is what i see thinking they have the best possible policy set up everything sounded great looked great and then only to find out after the fact wait a minute I could have done it differently, but I found out if I did do it differently, the agent would have made five to seven times less in compensation. Yes, that's exactly right. So as a uh, representative of buyers of various products, um, there, you know, there's nothing that I personally hate more than, first of all, lack of transparency on the products, lack of transparency on the expense and the commission. So what I would always, you know, tell buyers is don't proceed with any broker who isn't willing to give you an illustration that shows very clearly cost of insurance and the um, M&E lines, because you want to understand not only what the upfront commission of the broker is, but also what the fees and expenses will be moving forward. Now, I think, Steve, you've talked before, and I know you do a really good job educating people on the assumptions in the policies. So that also, though, is really important. What are we assuming the return's going to be? Because that can affect the value and the cash that you have to support the policy. But if we're talking specifically about the commission, I just want to um, kind of parse that out a little bit further. Um, When you're thinking about buying a policy and you're thinking about a commission, it's really important to understand that the commission is, uh, is, is going to be a drag on your cash value. So in other words, if, if you're buying a policy for cash in the future, as opposed to just a death benefit where your goal is to pay as little as possible and have a death benefit where the internal costs are important, but really your goal is the death benefit. If your goal is cash, then you it's really, really, really important that you know what those commissions are. And you also understand the motivation of the broker because there are products where a broker will make more Uh, and products where a broker will make less. So uh, just understanding the mindset of the broker when selling you those products is incredibly important. 
Well, 100% agreed. And thanks for laying that out because, you know, what, what you stated is 100% true, especially from a consumer's perspective. From an agent's perspective, they'll come in and say, well, there's different things in there that I can make an argument and I'll kind of sum it up because I, I am an agent. I'm in that space and we deal with this frequently is with a whole life insurance policy specifically. If someone's interested in cash value, like that's why they want to buy the policy as a safe, liquid, tax-free area to position money. Instead of purchasing a death benefit, if you're going to put any amount of money into a policy, the consumer, the policyholder, can actually choose where their money goes. And the fun part, I'll call it, is most people don't know that. You can choose how much of that, if it's $1, for example, how much of that dollar goes toward the insurance premium, which first buys you life insurance and nothing shows up in cash value. Typically in the first year, if it's a policy designed for long-term performance, you'll see it in the first and second year, that that premium not showing up in cash value. However, can actually you can also choose if money goes directly toward, I'll give you the technical term first, a PUA stands for paid up additions rider, which I'll refer to it as a cash dump in. I pay it in, shows up in cash value, compounding, I can access it. And that's really the key to growing that cash value as quickly as possible. And the thing is, when we take a life insurance policy, if someone says, hey, I want to pay in $10,000 like per year, that's how much I want to pay. I can direct it toward the premium, which doesn't show up in cash value and does generate a commission. The premium is the bulk of the compensation upfront and residually, or I can put it straight toward cash, PUAs, which does generate some commission, but it's, it's minimal relative to the premium. Question so far, because I'm throwing a lot of technical topics out there. <laughs> right. Well, I just want to now come back yep. and put a fine point on what you just said. Okay. So for the people who are listening to this podcast, there are two components, usually in a high cash value, whole life product. There's the premium right, which pays for the insurance, and then there are these paid up cash additions. So when you're talking to a broker, um, the broker will want more in premium because the broker makes a, a larger commission on the premium than the broker makes on the paid up additions. So it's, it's very important that you understand that. Now, if we were talking about a variable contract, it's a, it's a little bit different um, but with regard to these types of contracts, the fact what Steve just said is almost like the magic sauce um, or the secret sauce that brokers hope you don't fully understand because they can skew more toward the premium and make a higher commission. Yeah. And it's confusing when you look at a life insurance ledger or illustration with everything going on, too, because there's so many different terms for that PUA rider and premium. It's difficult if you're in the industry, let alone not in the industry. So what we'll do is really look at all insurance companies. But if someone wants to put money in, use that $10,000 example again to say, all right, money can go toward premium or toward paid up additions. What are the IRS limits? which has to do with the MEC limit on a policy. And that's very easy to set because the IRS looks really at my age, gender, and total amount of life insurance. So that we calculate. Some people want to dig in and understand it. Most say, is my MEC limit good? Yes. Okay, move on. And so that's the first limit, the IRS limit. But the second is the insurance company limit. 
So an insurance company has limitations that they make make aware to everyone as far as how much money a policyholder can pay into PUAs per year on top of their base premium. And what you'll find with a lot of the top companies, so the four major mutuals, which I'm a fan of because I see the actual like proof of performance, most of them are right around a 10, 10x. So whatever my premium is, if it's if I'm paying in 10,000, I could have a $1,000 base premium, throw another 9,000 into PUAs for a total of 10. Right. And some let you go lower, some let you higher. The 10% is a kind of a general term grouping those four companies together. But that, like in my opinion, as I kind of step back and look at it, I say, all right, you're taking advantage of the limits that the companies offer in order to squeeze down the premium, which does not give cash value immediately. And when you look at the guarantees, the lower the premium, the more money a consumer has. But then to your point, the premium is the number one driver of compensation. So when you minimize that, minimize a premium for consumer value, 99 out of 100 times you're going to minimize agent commission as well. It's going to work like that. Let me ask you a question, Steve. So let's just stay with our $10,000 contribution. $1,000 is going in as premium, $9,000 in paid up cash. Yep. Um, and we're assuming, I'm presuming, that we're doing $10,000 a year into the policy. Yep. What, and I know the death benefit, which is driven by what the IRS requires. Correct. Um, in 7702, I presume, uh, will also then, as the individual gets older, right, for that certain death benefit, isn't it true that the cost of insurance is going to go up as the individual ages or no? So that is true. When you look at a whole life insurance policy, if you actually study the the unit for every $1,000 of life insurance, as I grow older, the costs go up. With that said, though, with a whole life insurance policy, if it's set up right, the guarantees will always exceed that insurance expense. So when I look at my net growth year over year, the internal rate of return, that'll continue to produce a positive return and it looks good. I mean, we can take a policy on someone who's 75, if they're paying the same dollar amount in as someone who might be 45 and have very, very similar cash value results but the death benefits are drastically different. To get those similar results, we have to push that death benefit even lower on the 75-year-old individual. It takes a little bit more designing. Um, but to answer your question, I talk too much and provide more detail. Um, as you grow older, it is true that those internal expenses increase. However, you've got that contractual guarantee and it's set where the guarantee will always outpace the insurance expenses. So if you don't mess it up, go too high on premium or something like that, you'll see everything. The guarantees continue to go up and the non-guarantees look even better then, but that's looking at worst case first. Okay, so now carrying that forward, um, if I had a policy then that didn't have those guarantees built in, wouldn't I then be at risk of the policy imploding because of the increase of costs? if I haven't calculated that correctly. Correct, so that happens in two cases. With whole life, it doesn't happen that much. The only time it can really happen with a whole life product is it's usually a combination of the premium being too high because it's not showing up in cash value, so I'm slower out of the gates. 
but I've got a term rider attached that I, as the agent, neglect to remove. The policy is not properly funded and that I'll use term riders in almost every policy design because it's a cheap way to raise the death benefit and MEC limit. But if you're not aware of what can happen as time passes, those costs gradually increase. Eventually, we, we reduce or chop those riders off. If you don't, that's where with the whole life policy, if those costs become too high, that additional rider charge can exceed the guaranteed costs and someone can get into trouble. That's with the whole life. And it is very rare. I mean, you have to just do a horrible job and just disappear for that to happen. Where that happens more frequently is typically with universal life type products, indexed universal life. You'll see it happen a lot because your guarantee is typically zero. And with the IUL, you've got great upside potential because you can tie it, link it to the S&P 500 index. The numbers look fantastic from a projection standpoint. But I tell you, every policy I've seen, actual performance, not projections, which is what everyone sells on, they implode often or they just underperform and the consumer is not happy. And it's to your point, the reason why is you have an increasing insurance expense that no matter what happens exceeds the guarantees. So you carry an additional layer of risk there with some more upside potential, but you gotta be aware of that as a consumer before you put a ton of money into it or, or any amount of money. So, but to go back to the whole life, yes. the term writer, you mm-hmm. and I were talking earlier today about a client of mine who was relying on a policy, right? A mutual company yeah. policy with a good bit of cash. And then we kept, we found out yesterday that the policy is no longer in existence. So I know you're going to take a look at it for us, but your, uh, your guess is that the agent didn't remove the term writer. That, that's definitely a possibility. One other thing that could be the case is depending what the premium is, if he's not paying into it anymore, or if any policyholder is not paying into it anymore, and they have a premium due, and they say, I don't want to pay it, you can elect to go reduced paid up. And what that means, you chop the premium off, it's no longer due, and all dividends and interest are kicked back into cash value. Right. If you don't go reduced paid up, what happens is dividends and interest are first taken from the policy to pay the premium and then anything left over is kicked back into value, cash value, and then your death benefit grows. If the base premium is higher than the paid out dividend, what will happen is early on that cash value will grow, but if you let that run for a long period of time, and especially if you let it run based on the guarantees, you'll see those values go down because that base premium can exceed the guaranteed rate. So that could be another reason. So that'd be something I would kind of analyze too, just in taking a glance. But those would be the reasons why it could go south with a whole life product, assuming he had no loans or anything outstanding. Good. So now let me ask the next question, the way that I think in my brain is layering on uh, various changes to the um, theme. So if I had had a, um, a policy, so let's, let's take our $10,000 a year policy. So we were putting $9,000 a year in just paid up additions, right? Would it be possible ever? Well, let me, let me ask the first question. Let's say there's the death of the insured, those paid up additions go away, correct? They, they don't come out as additional death benefit. The death benefit is all you get. 
or do you also get the cash from the paid up addition? I enjoy that question. We get it a lot. So when you die on paper, we receive the death benefit, whatever the death benefit is on our enforced illustration, our statement, that's what's paid out to our beneficiaries. However, I'm gonna add that, is if you dump $9,000 into paid up additions, which I do it for cash value, depending on my age, that'll purchase me, call it another twenty-five dollars to $30,000 in paid up additional death benefit added to my original face amount. So what happens is as I'm stuffing the cash value, I'm doing it for cash value, but my death benefits increasing with it. So on paper, if I've got $500,000 in cash value and my death benefits 1.5 million, I die the 1.5 on paper is paid out. However, day one, before I paid anything in, my death benefit may have only been worth $500,000. Questions on that point? Go ahead. No, that's it. That was really the point I wanted to make gotcha. because there's a lot of people out there who are saying paid up additions don't make sense. You know, you lose them. You And so it's really important, I think, for us to talk about this yeah. in terms of structuring given what's coming down the road, I think, in terms of income tax rates increasing. So I have a next question that I want ask you, let's assume that somebody has listed the same policy, 10,000 a year, they've paid 9,000 a year in as cash, the death benefit has gone up, right? Mm -hmm. Now they borrow against that cash from an outside lender. All right. So they are arbitraging the cash that's in the policy with a loan I can tell you as a lawyer who represents some of these lenders, they love high cash value insurance. It's the very, the favorite asset. And my advice to my banks has been watch out for what's going on in the real estate market and start spreading that risk in terms of what it is you're lending against. And the banks have, you know, all of the banks have, the regulatory bodies look at, you know, how much risk they have in various markets. So the arbitrage makes sense for the lender and, and from the borrower. So let's now talk about what it would look like uh, on death, because that I will tell you that people, this whole loan issue and what happens that becomes um, almost overwhelming. Now, on the one side, in a variable or universal product, if you borrow from the policy, you're borrowing from yourself, which is very different than in a whole life product where it really doesn't make sense to do that. So you would have an outside lender. So just to be clear, if we were talking about a loan inside a universal product, that's very different from an external loan with mm -hmm. secured interest in a bank. So let's now talk about what if we had a product with this high cash value and an outstanding loan? Why don't you describe what would happen at the death of the insured? Definitely. Starting, starting with the outstanding loan with the whole life policy and then transition into the, the collateral. Sure. So if I have a policy where I have a $1 million death benefit, I'm going to simplify this and have $100,000 in cash value. 
and I'm paying 10K per year, whatever. If I, of my 100,000, say I want to take a loan out of $50,000, what'll happen is I borrow that 50,000 out, the insurance company is going to collateralize my death benefit dollar for dollar. So meaning if I had 1 million, now it's 950. If I die the next day, 950 is paid out to my beneficiaries. Now, in respect to Will the insurance company pay the bank directly or will the insurance company pay the beneficiaries and then it's their debt? Gotcha. So in that case, if it's a collateral loan, there is a collateral assignment on the policy where the bank needs to recover their cash first. So they're going to have an assignment of its $50,000. They're going to get paid $50,000 and the rest would go to the beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. And so that creates a preference in favor of the bank uh, or the lending institution that that gives them priority. Priority Now, in most states, there wouldn't be creditors because it's going to the beneficiaries. But one of the things from a legal standpoint that you see is certain states um, don't have that same protection. California and New York are two that don't. But um, so you can see why, to your listeners, banks love this because they know that they will be Paid. Now, it is a little creepy that a bank like, you know, has an interest in you dying. But, um, you know, your family has an interest in you dying, too, if you're worth more dead than alive, um, which I frankly am at this point in time. But, you know, hopefully they love us enough to not to not knock us off. So but, you know, without, uh, you know, going down that road any further, that collateral assignment then makes things very simple and um, and really very straightforward. Correct, correct, 100%. And one thing I wanna to touch on too with that the collateral loan through a bank is if I don't do that, if I just borrow from a policy, loan rates on whole life policies typically range between five to 6%. You can find some with a four and a half percent loan rate one new product is always a 3% loan rate, but at the same time, it always goes up to 5%. And that's borrowing directly from the insurance company. And the thing is, like like a loan for my policy is very convenient. That's nice, I don't have to pay it back. I can pay it back at leisure, that's great. But when you look at the rate, 5% high, especially, yeah, especially like what I see all the time is someone will state, hey, you're borrowing at 5% from your policy and you've got this 6% dividend. That's what the company's paying. But I'm like, that is, people get upset with that because a dividend rate is not what you are actually earning on the policy. It's a gross rate after the company's insurance expenses. The net IRR, the net return, if you want to call it that, will fall in a dividend rate of 6%, typically around four, maybe four and a half percent. Like that's my net growth. That's so when you really break it down, it's like, okay, I'm earning four, I'm paying five, it's a negative one percent spread. And people are not comfortable with that. So then flipping to the collateral loan, that's where if I'm gonna earn the same four to four and a half percent on the policy no matter what, and now I can leverage that and get a loan at call it I'm used to 3%. The rates you shared with me made my eyes shoot out of my head. Um, but <laughs> that's where it becomes a positive spread. Right. I mean, you know, so the what, you know, Steve, you and I are talking about then is creating a vehicle, 
um, to provide for income tax-free growth inside of a policy. And I wanna to talk to you about what those options look like uh, in terms of, of that and, and the ability to borrow. Steve was mentioning three. What I would say is I want 2% or less on, uh, on the policies and there are lenders who will lend at, at those rates. So, um, so the arbitrage is really fantastic because if you are earning inside of the policy, you know, four and a half percent and you're borrowing it too, that looks very different than an actual negative return. Yeah, big time. And then, yeah, I mean, we can talk about that all day. And when people hear this, they're going to be, tell me more, tell me more. So yeah, we'll make sure. So we're ready for the I, time. I think that, um, you know, a, a lot of your listeners are doing infinite banking. Uh, they kind of follow that yeah. mindset. So for the listeners who are thinking about that, that is this is a similar, it's kind of along that same uh, line of thinking, but in order to use it in the infinite, use this asset in the infinite banking world, you really do need to have a lender who can lend at something to create actual arbitrage against the asset. Yeah, 100% with you. This way you continue to move forward, not backward on your overall money. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is exactly what we want, yeah. The one thing I wanted to ask you, and this, I'm looking at the clock, we may have to do this next time. Just when you, when you, when we first met, you mentioned there's a story where you're giving a presentation and these insurance agents are yelling at you. So this is going back to the topic of commission. And yeah. why that stuck with me during that conversation we had is we get the, I don't want to say the exact same thing, but we'll create content, just transparency around how compensation works. And when I post a video on that, the amount of agents that post on that, like you and your perfect policies, you guys, and then like all this hate. I'm like, what are you doing, man? Like, we're just transparent here. But <laughs> no, gonna... I have a, right, yeah. exactly. I mean, that story I told you was because I was years ago really advocating these high cash value products. And uh, with either this kind of reduced amount of premium uh, to, and it did reduce the commission, or a high cash value variable contract where um, you know the commission comes out as a trail, yeah. um, and and of course the you know the peddlers of retail products don't like that. And there's an old saying that uh, someone I like very much, uh, a, a pastor friend of mine uses when he teaches, and he he says when you throw when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs. The one who screams loudest is the one who was hit. And, um, and I love that because that's really exactly what happens. So, uh, you know, to the other agents out there, I'm not calling you a pack of dogs. But what I am saying is, if you find yourself being really upset about what someone is saying, it may be because it's hitting you where it hurts you most, which is the pocketbook. And while you are absolutely entitled to make a good to make a good living, um, the reality is that um, you know if you're a high cash value purchaser, you have a right to demand um, more of a wholesale type of product. 
And the other message that I have to agents is to the extent that you care about your client more than you care about yourself, the money will come because people will trust you because that's the other thing. Agents, those of you who are having trouble selling product or policies, and a lot of you have, I've talked to you over the years, the reason is that your clients don't trust you. So insurance is a wonderful product. It should sell itself and it will. If you don't put the money first, you put your customer or your client first and you're transparent. It will absolutely sell itself. Yeah, that's, I can't add anything to that. I had something I was gonna say, but that was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's the truth. I mean, I, I try and communicate that message especially to people that we work with before we've had to part ways with agents because like, shouldn't we take a little more for ourselves? I'm like, no, because it's their money, not yours at the end of the day. It'll come, just do the right thing. Um, but yeah, no, thanks. Thanks so much for going into that. No, we're out of time. I really appreciate you always taking the time. Um, love having you on these podcasts. Um, the value, I do want to add this um, for anyone just looking to understand if you're being presented a whole life policy or any type of strategy. Like I work with Elizabeth and her firm and they are very transparent and they understand different products, strategies, investments, things I don't know anything about, but they're very good at it and they serve as that independent third party where they can give you advice and they're not incentivized by any type of sale. Like we have no financial relationship incentive, nothing like that. So I, I do appreciate that personally as a consumer, but just for anyone listening that you know is thinking or wondering about that, you will get that service with her and any of your associates. They're all great, the ones I've worked with. I, I like them all. Thank you, our goal, yep, that's uh, hopefully, they will always all be that way. So anyway, Steve, thank you so much. I really enjoy our relationship and the opportunity to, um, to talk about these issues and provide you know, an educational platform for people who are, who are trying to understand how all of this works. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. And until next time, we'll talk to you all soon. Right. All Thanks. right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks bye. So much. bye.